Suakato Bhagavata Dhammo Sanditiko Akaliko Ehipasiko Opanayiko Pachatak Veditabo Vinyuhi Tamahang Dhammang Abhipujayami Tamahang Dhammang Sirasanamami Supatipano Bhagavato Sāvaka-saṅgo Ujjupatipāno Bhagavato Sāvaka-saṅgo Bhagavato Sāvaka-saṅgo Sāmi-chipatipāno Bhagavato Sawaka Sango Yadi Dangchatari Purisa Yugani Atta Purisa Pugala Esa Bhagavato Sawaka Sango Ahuneo Pahuneo Dakineyo Anjali Karaniyo Anutara Punyaketa Lokasa Tamahang Sangang Abhipujayami Tamahang Sangang Sirasanamami This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, not busy with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud and demanding in nature, let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove, wishing in gladness and in safety may all beings be happy, whatever living beings there may be. Whether they are weak or small, omitting none, the weak and the mighty, 
medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be happy. Let none deceive another, or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another, even as a mother protects with her life. Her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart, should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths. Outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, freed from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding by not holding to false views the pure-hearted one having clarity of vision being free from all sense desires is not born again into this Chanting, some effort. Oh, I should put this on. It's nice to give chanting some effort, like you give the letter writing some effort. <laughs> the many in here still. Here we go. Let's see what the first one is today. Dear Ajahn, what can be done with someone who is adamant that they have become a stream winner just by contemplating and reading the Dhamma without any meditation? If they are actually adamant they are a stream winner, then you just leave them alone and ignore them. (laughs) First of all, why do they want to say they are a stream winner? And this was one of the sayings of, there's a lovely nun over in, uh, in Melbourne, that's Chi Kuang Sunim, and she told me it was her teacher who told her that if she ever becomes a stream winner or any stage of enlightenment, 
don't tell anybody. Otherwise, you'll have to spend the rest of your life proving it. Because these are sort of uh, stuff, if you think of them as attainments, then you're going to get into trouble. What they are is actually letting go of things. It's a disappearance. It's not getting more things. It's not getting a, another certificate you can put on the wall. Did I tell you about that um, retreat center over in Colombo some years ago? I know you, some of you have heard these stories because, you know, you listen to me on YouTube. I don't know what you heard, what you haven't heard, but anyway, here it comes. <laughs> <laughs> there was this, this old lady who lived now up in the mountains somewhere in Sri Lanka. She came to visit her family, but they got a bit bored, honestly bored with her. So what can we do with her old sort of auntie-grandma? And so they knew she was a very devout Buddhist, would meditate and listen to Dhamma talks. So they found out that there was a retreat centre close by where they were doing, I think it was 60-day retreats or something, long retreats, maybe not that long, 30 days maybe. And they would not just teach meditation, they would teach from the suttas and they'd make it much more formal than we do here. And at the end of the retreat, they'll give you an exam. <laughs> well, you might keep it modern. And so the old grandma just uh, did the exam and they checked out her meditation, how it was. And then they had the final day when they were going to announce the results. And they came up to this old grandma and told her, said, We've all just been looking at your understanding of the Dhamma and of your uh, practice of meditation and we've got some very good news for you, Auntie. We've decided unanimously that you are a stream winner. And they gave her this certificate, beautiful certificate, that these uh, teachers in this retreat centre agreed that she was a stream winner. And when they gave it to her, she got very upset. And they said, Grandma, why are you so upset? A stream winner, that's amazing achievement. Why are you so upset by receiving this, this, uh, this certificate that you're a stream winner? And she looked at them. You don't remember me, do you? No, we don't know who you are. I was here about three years ago. Three years ago, you gave me a non-returner certificate. <laughs> You've demoted me. <laughs> so anyway, the place closed down soon after. But all you can ever do with somebody, first of all, interesting, one of the things about being a stream winner is an event. So you can't, when, this, I'm telling you all the tricks, but nevertheless, um, especially in the monks' Vinaya, because remember I did tell everybody I really studied that monks' Vinaya years ago, and there they have a list of questions you have to ask somebody, especially if it's a monastic, because if we claim sort of a stage like being a stream winner and we're not, 
that can be a paradigmal offence for us. We have to leave the monkhood. It's a very serious offence. So if somebody says that they have attained something, we can't just say, oh, no, I don't believe it, or oh, yeah, it's true. We have to find out if it's true or not, if that's at all possible. So we have a series of questions we're supposed to ask the person who says they're a stream winner. And one of them is, when did it happen? And where did it happen? In other words, it is an event, something which occurs in time and in place. Before you weren't, afterwards you are. So that's an interesting point. And sometimes what you can do is you can ask them, when did you become a streamer? What, what time, what day? Number two, where? And they say, oh no, it just sort of kind of happened. You know, that's uh, a, a sure sign that they're not. Dear Ajahn Brahm, I know we aim to free ourselves of desires wanting, but is wanting to give ourselves others unconditional love the exception to this? You don't want to give others unconditional love. The unconditional love happens. If it's wanting, there's something which is conditional about that. You know, you're making it happen. It's not like kind of pure. So unconditional love. And do you give everybody unconditional love? Kim Jong-un? <laughs> so this is an aspiration to give unconditional love to others. But first of all, learn how to give unconditional love to your own five candles. And if you can, if you can give it to others, but you can't give it to yourself, is it really unconditional love you're dealing with? So, in the end, the real aim to free ourselves of desires and free yourself of yourself. No self. Free yourself of yourself, if you can. And then there's no desires or wanting happening. The Dharma can become very complicated, you know, if we, if we want to... Um, think too much. And so this was one of those similes which um, I developed, well yeah, okay, I'll be honest, I thought I developed it and it was a simile of the hand. When I was a lay Buddhist, of course, you know, I started to have girlf I had girlfriends at the beginning, but then I gave them up because I thought, no, they're going to be too expensive and I was very really poor. They were. And not only that, they just got more fun out of meditating. It was like I put all that down. And when you gave up such sensuality, when you went to Bangkok to become a monk, you enjoyed the food in Bangkok, not in the northeast, but in Bangkok, yeah. And I found out that whenever I let something go, I picked up something else. And I started really getting into the food. You know, it's like almost like wanted to desire something. Later on you've found out the Buddha taught that sometimes it's not just wanting an object, it's wanting to want. The desire to have a desire. And that kind of makes you alive, that you're participating in the world, you're the same as everybody else. You have aspirations and desires. If you became aimless, 
then either you, you, know, you wander around going nowhere or you're fully enlightened. Those are two types of aimlessness. <laughs> but they look very different. But it's, I, it's kind of like a realisation. I think, how can I stop attaching to things? It'd be like a cup of tea. Or One of the weirdest things which I attached to when I was in uh, Thailand as a young monk, we didn't have any radios, televisions, but every now and again someone would bring us a Time magazine. And I remember just one day, it was after the Katina season, and we'd, I'd done all of the tidying up in the monastery, and it was all done, and I had a, a Time magazine, a bottle of Pepsi. <laughs> and I thought, life doesn't get better than this. <laughs> To me, that was the acme of, of sensory pleasure. <laughs> really weird. But nevertheless, I did actually realise that you pick up one thing, you put it down, then you pick up another thing. So I thought the only way to overcome some attachments is cutting off your hands. <laughs> and okay, that was a stupid simile, wasn't it? Cutting off your hands, who would do that? But then in Anguttu and Nikai, you see the simile of the cutting off the hands and cutting off the feet is a simile of the Buddha, which I hadn't read yet. And you know, it just came up. That did, as I often men- mention this when I tell that uh, story, gives me goosebumps. I hadn't read that story, but then it sort of came up as the Buddha said it. Obviously past life stuff. But nevertheless, that idea of free ourselves of desires, the only way to free yourself of desires properly is to cut off the thing which picks up things. To stop not just the objects of desire, but the thing on this end which picks up things, the desire. And that's the sense of self. Whenever there's a me, there's things which I own. That's how the Buddha taught. If there's something you own, there's a self on the other end of that. So the only other way to stop the desires and attachment and the idea of ownership is actually to cut off the person who does the owning. Who is that? And over and over here, he's saying that the fellow who thinks they've become a stream winner, ask them, what is a stream winner? It is that your rupakanda, your body, is a body a stream winner? Is it your perceptions? Is it your vedana? Is it your sankhara? Is it your consciousnesses? Did you hear that word I said? I never said consciousness. I said consciousnesses. Six different types. Which one is the stream winner? Your sight consciousness? Your mind consciousness? Which one is the stream winner? And see what he says to that. Because they're all separate and they're all just um, uh, come and go. Anyway, there's no joke in that, was there? <laughs> it's a joke for the evening, I'm not sure. See what happens. Oh, I did tell the joke about the old lady, that was funny. When talking about the nimitta as a reflection of the mind that is bright, how can we reconcile this with the understanding of the mind that is impermanent, nothing but a process of discrete moments of mind consciousness, coming into existence and disappearing in a flash? That's supposed to be the same as your body. 
coming together and disappearing in a flash. But I look at you, and you don't sort of come and go and flash around or anything. You're here for quite a long time before you change. So this is a misinterpretation, you know, of just the idea of these five candles coming and going very quickly. But nevertheless, you know, there's some which last much longer. This was uh, one of the Buddha's similes. He said, it would be better if human beings, or well, no, basically meditators, practitioners, if you took this body to be a self. Because your body lasts such a long time. You wake up in the morning, you go to bed at night, you look pretty much the same. It lasts much longer than things like the mind, which comes and, go very, comes and goes very quickly. But remember, what is a meditation? It's called stillness. Things slow down, and you get a lot and lot of stillness. And that really means that when you especially get into those deep meditations, the jhanas, it's weird because you have the same perception for hours. It doesn't move. Eventually it goes, but it sustains itself for a long period of time. The bliss. It gives it the quality of stillness. That's what you experience. Again, things coming and going very quickly. It's correct, but it's not quite accurate because that's a theory. You read that in books. What actually do you see and experience? And these deep meditations where the five hindrances are totally gone. So this is actually why the experience is so much more important. And then you really start to understand just what you know, this whole process is. The process can really slow down. It's not a process, but it sustains itself for long periods of time. And that's, you know, one of the reasons why that if a person dies and they go into those jhana states, you know, you last eons. Nothing moves for long periods of time. So anyway, this is like when monks used to argue about the Dhamma, there was one of these little stories as there's two monks arguing about the importance of your understanding of rebirth or reincarnation, whatever you wish to call it. And so they're arguing, is reincarnation really important or rebirth really important to understand and to accept? One monk said, Look, we always talk about the present moment, right now. You know, how can you say it about rebirth? I haven't died yet. I might think of it, it's, it's true. But how do you really know if you haven't died? And the other monk said, what are you talking about? The Buddha talked about rebirth. That's the whole purpose of this, to end rebirth, rebirth. And so they had an argument. So one went into the, the senior monk, the, the, the ayah, the senior nun, okay, let's make it different. And, <laughs> and the senior nun said, said to the first one I went in, who asked, you know, do you have to believe in, in rebirth in your practice? Because, you know, we live in the present moment. Rebirth is about the future. So, 
And the senior nun said, mm, yeah, that's right. So they went out and said, see, the senior nun said I was right. And the other one went in and asked the senior nun, but the Buddha taught about rebirth. The whole purpose of this is ending rebirth. And the senior nun said, yeah, yeah, that's right. So the other monk went out and said, she said I was right. She couldn't have, she said I was right. So the two of them went in, the two monks went in and said, first she said I was right because saying rebirth is not really important. And then the other one came in and she said rebirth was important. You said they were right, we can't both be right. And the senior nun said, yes, that's true. <laughs> okay. Anyway. Yeah, okay, there we go. Mind cultures come into existence and disappearing in a flash. Not a flash. Isn't a, isn't a perception of a stable, luminous, unchanging mind still bound up with delusion to a degree? It's not, it's a, it's not an unchanging mind. It changes slowly. Please comment on the deepest nature of mind consciousness. You want to know about the deepest nature of mind consciousness? That is, because when I was talking about the, how was it called, the thousand petal lotus, uh, how about how you open up the different layers of petals and you go deeper and deeper and deeper into the lotus. And what, where does it end up as you go deeper and deeper? You go past the fourth jhana into the first immaterial. That's un unlimited or unbounded, unmeasured space. They call it like ananta, which means no edge to it. And when you say infinite, I don't like the word infinite, that becomes too bound up with a lot of concepts of infinity, because this is where space starts to lose its meaning. If you can't describe it, describe it means like you're putting a circle around it, as and being able to say this is it and this is not it. It's like space loses its meaning. Like infinity or a spot becomes the same. And the same with infinite space, inf what's that, infinite consciousness, and then um, nothingness, and then neither perception or non-perception. What do those really mean? It means your mindfulness is starting to disappear. Your mind is turning off. It's disappearing. And then, um, then what happens? And the answer was, I mentioned, I think, this morning about the importance of inspiration. And this was, many of you know the story, it's one of my favorite ones is that when Ajahn Chah would come to our monastery in uh, Bungwai village, and he would come and give his amazing talks, sometimes, and sometimes he would come and give really boring talks. Sometimes you, you know, hit the spot, and sometimes you don't hit the spot, but it's worth it. All those hours of talks, and then every now and again you say something which was so incredibly profound and inspiring. And this was that one of those days. He was really hitting the spot every time, and I was just blissing out and getting so inspired. And when I was listening to him, once sort of he'd finished his talk, 
Now you go to this monastery to take a, a sauna. We built him a sauna uh, for his... Well, actually, I've got to be honest. 50% was for his health, and the other 50% was so we can get him to come to our monastery and give a talk. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We're being honest there. So let's build him a sauna, then there's a good, a good possibility he might come more often. And so many of the other monks went to help him in the sauna. But that day, that I was so blissed out with the talk, I just walked around the back of the hall. You know, like, you've got the back of the hall down here. I don't know if anybody uses it. It's a nice, lovely space in the front there. And I went to the front of the, or the back of the hall and started meditating. It was a couple of hours, really easy, and just really enjoying myself. And then when I came out of my meditation, I thought, I wonder if there's still a duty I can do to my teacher, to Ajahn Chah. So I got up and I walked towards the sauna. And as I was walking towards the sauna, I realized I was too late. Because I saw Ajahn Chah coming towards me, walking with another Thai man, his driver. He'd finished his sauna and he'd uh, put his robes on, going to the car park in our monastery so he could get in his car and go to Wapapong. But it didn't matter because I was just so sort of uh, walking on air, as it were. No, not literally. I was just so happy and so peaceful. And when that, I had to pass that gentle. I was just going right in that direction. And as soon as he came close to me, I noticed that he was just looking at me. You know, he saw that I'd just come out of a really nice meditation. And that's when... And I don't mind saying this, that's when you could feel him reading your mind. It's a weird thing to describe, but you have all these experiences, you know, from meditation. How do you put this into language which people can understand? And so, for me, how I experienced it was like, you know, he was inside me. You can feel him almost looking around. And I was not embarrassed at all. For once, I was very happy that he could come and have a look inside my mind. For once it was nice and tidy <laughs> and clean and blissful. <laughs> so, and he was looking at me for, inside me for a few minutes and then he sort of came out and he looked at me quite fiercely and he said, Brahma Wangso, that's the full name. Brahma Wangso. Why? You know, he said it quite fiercely. And then I said to him, um, I don't know. Because <laughs> <laughs> a lot of times, that, you know, you expected that those sorts of words would not totally enlighten you right there and then. But I was still a stupid young monk. And he just laughed his head off. Whenever you said something stupid or did something stupid... Ajahn Chah would never scold you. He'd think it was just so funny. Here's a monk who's just got a really good degree from Cambridge University and he's so stupid. So I and the other Western monks, we caused so much happiness to our teacher. I think that's why he had so many Western monks. But anyway, but then he screwed his face up again. And he said, Brahma Wangsa, I'll tell you the answer. The answer to the question, why? And that was really amazing. I was really excited. 
because this was a personal teaching. There was another Thai man there with him, but this was just Ajahn Chah and myself just asking the question. I'll tell you the answer to the question, why? And he said, the answer to the question, why? If anyone asks you that question again, this is the right answer. The right answer is, my me arai. You know that wrong. My me, it's Thai. And it meant, there's nothing. He repeated, there's nothing. My me arai. And then he looked at me, seriously, and said, do you understand? And I said, yeah. And he said, no, you don't. (laughs) (laughs) And and it didn't really disappoint me, because it was true, and he just gave me a real big clue to what's in the heart of the lotus. What's in the heart of the lotus, the center? My me arai. There's nothing. Do you understand? <laughs> no, you don't. <laughs> anyway. Um, okay. On the deepest nature of mind consciousness, it all disappears. And the more that disappears, the more stable it is. That's one of the reasons why the stablest of mental states are those deep meditations. There's hardly anything left. Hi, Ajahn Brahm. Hi. <laughs> That's my answer. <laughs> is kindness karuna? Like karuna is usually uh, a kind response to someone who's suffering. Well, I don't want to make too many differences between uh, kindness, metta, and karuna. But one of the ones which we don't talk enough about is about uh, mudita. That's a beautiful um, uh, one of the four Brahmaviharas. That is where you celebrate somebody else's success. And sometimes, you know, if I say that in this retreat, 60 people, that um, all, the, all the men have, are stream winners now, and all the women, they've got nowhere. <laughs> How would you feel? <laughs> and if you said, oh, sadhu, sadhu, so happy there's so many stream winners in this retreat, then okay, well done. But if you think, that's unfair, why them but not me? <laughs> That's the opposite of mudita. Mudita is always this opportunity for free happiness, to celebrate somebody else's success, and not get sort of involved in the sort of the, either jealousy or lack of fairness, or, you know, there's no respect for the other half of the population. And those are fair points, but the opportunity to get loving kind, uh, to get this beautiful mudita, celebrate somebody else's joy, is lost. That's one of the reasons why, you know, that when somebody has this beautiful meditation, or like when I announced to those people about that uh, guy with all those tattoos on him, I'd never seen him before, and he came in here and got a jhana, and other people said, that's unfair. 
I'm Sri Lankan. I've been meditating for so many times. It's not my first meditation retreat. I've done heaps of meditation retreats. And this guy just walks in here and he's just, he doesn't do dana. He just comes in here and gets a jhana. That's really unfair. <laughs> of course, you know, we don't think like that. Isn't it amazing that everybody can sooner or later? And that gives you a lot of happiness when we have mudita rather than kind of negativity and jealousy. Dear Adam, is the Nimitta light the same sort of light we see when we die? Yes. If so, what do we do? I mean, when you die. <laughs> no. No. <laughs> Sorry. The Nimitta light, the same sort of light we see when we die. This is important to know because somebody was asking that, you know, if you um, don't have the experience of a stream winner, you know, before you die, is that going to be really terrible? You're not a stream winner and you'll be liable to go to lower realms and all sorts of stuff. Who knows whether you're going to be able to meet the good dhamma in the next life. Ah! Because I keep on saying that you can be on the path to being a stream winner, without a jhana, but I cannot see how you can be a stream winner without a jhana. The jhana is part of the Eightfold Path. So if you haven't had a jhana, are you stuffed? No chance. There is a, is a, a last chance for each one of you. Because when you die, as long as you, you know, have some understanding of the Dhamma, you got you know enough uh, knowledge, and if, especially if you happen to be on the path to being a stream winner. Then, when you die, and the five senses stop, and you see the the light, which people have near death experience, keep on saying that they go towards the light that is the same as the nimitta. So you have a chance at the very end of your life. One last chance. So don't mess it up. When you die and those five senses stop and the sixth sense is very bright and you go towards that light, what do you do? Don't get excited or afraid. <laughs> like some of you said was the problem. Let yourself go right in. Have the experience of merging with that beautiful light. And that becomes a jhana experience for you and give you the last thing necessary to actually to be a stream winner, if not more. One last chance just before you die. And if you don't uh, get to be a stream winner when you, uh, your body dies and you see the light, make sure you come back again and so you, uh, you revive and it's called it a near-death experience. And then you have another chance later on when you die again. Does that make sense? Maybe, I don't know. Uh, but it is the same sort of light you see when you die. Dear Ajahn Brahm, is there any place for violence in Buddhism? I can't see any place for violence. Or maybe, maybe, if somebody has got something stuck in their throat when they're eating, bang them on the back. <laughs> That's about 
that's, that's actually, that was one of the similes of the Buddha, wasn't it? If uh, uh, someone has got a fishbone stuck in their throat, if, they were saying this to one of the princes. The Buddha was saying, you know, Prince Payasi, if, if your um, son has got a fishbone stuck down its throat, you know, you put your, your hand down that throat, even though your, your kid squeals in pain to get the fishbone out to save their life. Is that violence? It may look like violence to others, but you're doing it out of compassion and care for somebody's life. You may sort of, Ajahn Brahm might be walking across the road and then a big truck comes and you push Ajahn Brahm out of the way. Is that violence? It might look like it. But anyway, those are the only places for violence in Buddhism. Otherwise, I can't see any place or cause for violence. That's why a lot of times the Buddhists, um, sometimes there was, where was it? Yeah, I think it was Kapilavatu. It was sacked and destroyed after the Buddha passed away. And they say that the the monks there, they just uh, realized this was their karma. They couldn't do anything. They didn't fight back. This was the, not the monks, the, the Buddha's relations. Anyway, how do I combine breathing and kindful? Is it... S... I don't can read this. Sepmes kindness feeling. Is it to express kindness feeling, emotions during watching the breath? Now, a couple of people have, have done that uh, on the suggestion uh, which I gave here. What they do is you start looking at the breath like, you know, and saying... Breath, may you be really happy and well. Thank you for looking after me all this time. I do care for you. As if your breath is not something you own, but something you live with. Just like it may be a little cat or a dog. You make sure that your dog is well fed and looked after and groomed. And you know, it doesn't feel afraid of you. And so that's what you do with the breath. And it's also, you can... You get the feeling of loving kindness, not particularly wishing it to be like this or to be like that, but just like unconditional, un, um, unconditional um, loving kindness uh, without wanting it to be any which way. That's why sometimes I object when you come and say to me, please have a wonderful day. Instead. It's not up to you to control me by saying, may you have a wonderful day. So if you really have loving kindness towards me or towards one of the nuns, you say, may you have a wonderful day today if you want, but you don't have to just because of me, because my loving kindness is unconditional. May you have a miserable day if you want one. It's up to you. (laughs) In other words, loving kindness, which really is opening the door of your heart, unconditionally, no matter what. You do that to your breath, and, you know, the breath responds by relaxing. You're not asking it to do anything. You're not asking it to breathe in long or short. And you have this wonderful sense of kindness towards it. And whatever you tend to have kindness towards, a lot of time, if it's a human being, like the human being smiles back, you smile at them. So if loving kindness towards the breath, the breath gets really so soft and mellow and nice to watch. And that 
means that it's very easy to sustain your attention on it effortlessly because you're kind to it. And sometimes if you get a little animal, sometimes, oh, the other day when we went into town for something, we, had, we were late arriving at our destination and the reason was it was over the Quinana Freeway, this very busy freeway, and we had to just slow down and actually pull over onto the side lane because there was a family of ducks crossing the freeway. Their mum and dad and all these little ducklings following afterwards. And when you see them, it's just, you know, you're almost like, they're so cute, these little ducks, and they're trying their very best to get across the freeway as fast as they can so they don't get squashed. And of course, it was a beautiful thing to see. You had loving kindness towards those, and so you just, uh, you looked after them. You can have loving kindness to little animals. Why can't you have little loving kindness towards your breath? It's very easy to watch them. Dear Ajahn Brahm, would you consider a guided meditation? Thank you. Of course I will consider it. I might not do it, but I will consider it. (laughs) Sorry. Yeah, we do a guided meditation at least the last day when we do the loving-kindness guided meditation. Is it possible to transfer sentimental to someone in a difficult situation during metta meditation? Of course. If yes, how? You know, you think of them. If it's someone who's close to someone you know very, very well, all you need to do is just imagine them. Imagine them and then give them lots and lots of loving kindness. They're still alive, maybe in a difficult situation, and it works. And that's you know what I, I many years ago, on that last meditation which I do on retreats, the guided loving kindness meditation. I decided to you know, prove it to people that it actually works. And so what I did, uh, when we did this loving-kindness meditation, uh, once people had got the, I call it like the fire of loving-kindness uh, going strong, you know, it's like building up a fire. When the fire's very hot, it can burn anything. So the difficult things that you put loving-kindness on, you know, it could be your mother-in-law or your... <laughs> You know what mother-in-law spells if you rearrange the letters? Hitler woman. <laughs> Try it when you go, go back. Mother-in-law. And if you rearrange the letters, it's an autograph. <laughs> I haven't got it against uh, Adolf Hitler. <laughs> I'm sorry. What am I doing? <laughs> Confusing myself. Oh, so what then we do, uh, just imagine somebody who's close to you and then really zap them with lots and lots of loving kindness when you've got lots of loving kindness to zap them with. And then I'd look at the time. And I remember what the time was. I opened my eyes, checked the time. At the end of the meditation, I tell, excuse me, I tell everybody that you did that loving-kindness to that one individual at 8.42 now. At 8.42. So when you go back home after the retreat, give them a call. And just say, you know, mother-in-law, um, how are you? you know, anything okay for you? Oh, just by the way, what, was, what were you doing at 8.42? 
and you'll be surprised how well it works. I don't do that anymore during those loving-kindness meditations, and the reason is because when I did do that, in the evening, I couldn't take a rest. Everybody was giving me a call. Ajahn Brahm, I needed to call you. So, you know, anything wrong? No, I just want to tell you it worked. <laughs> <laughs> so, wanting an easy life, I just don't do it now. Anyway, dear Ajahn Brahm, our Anapanasati and Metta, the only meditation techniques required for stream entry. Now, any way which leads into jhana, you don't need to Anapanasati alone to get into jhanas or metta. There's many ways into those jhanas. And sometimes, I already mentioned one this morning, like Kasina meditation. Even things like you know, Buddha Anasati, just when you just reflect on the Buddha. Sometimes, when you reflect on the Buddha, it becomes just so powerful, you get so much energy. You can look at a Buddha statue and it turns into like a nimitta pretty quickly. Or another weird thing, I do have, I have in my office over in the monastery, I've got two skulls. And sometimes that's one of the ways of actually developing a beautiful nimitta. I don't know why the skulls work, but you can focus on it. And after a while, it turns into something very beautiful. You know, if the contents of a toilet bowl can do that, sort of a skull, it's very easy to do that. And I've got two skulls. Now, one is... uh, uh, a dead skull, a couple hundred years old apparently. The other skull, I don't reflect on it because it's in between my ears. <laughs> That's my second skull, which I, which I have. <laughs> but anyway, even like a skull, it can turn into a beautiful nimitta, and then you can actually take that into a jhana. There's many ways, but it's very uh, basic. is letting go of your five senses. The mind gets very strong, and then the nimitta comes, and then you enter the nimitta through the jhana. No, that's not right, is it? You enter the jhana through the nimitta. From this morning's talk, no doer, no knower, or will... Oh, I thought I'd get a question on this. The thought arose to reflect on this in walking meditation when the body is not still. Surely there must be a doer willing movement, placing one's no thing labelled foot one after another. And sometimes it just happens automatically. And that's one of the reasons you understand you don't need a will to do that. It's actually conditioned. And that which you take to be a will, uh, there was a psychologist, what was his name again? Sorry? Libet, yeah. Professor Libet, L-I-B-E-T. And he was actually noticing that what we are aware of as will is not the real will. He said, that which initiates action or initiates, initiates speech occurs, I think, about um, uh, a fraction of a second, I think a fifth of a second or two-fifths of a second, before this experience which we associate with our will. And what he did, he had these students, he had you know, one, they, they could choose to... Um, flex their, their, their fists or open their fists that's, that's flexing to scrunch their fists or open them when they made that decision when they were aware of the will to change the position of their fist they would press a little button and they managed to um, no, 
to adjust, you know, for your reaction times. But they also had some, like, CT scan on their brains. And what they found is when they were aware of the will just to move their hands, at that point there had been what they called a readiness potential in their brain could be seen in a, a fraction of a second before they were aware of their will. So the thing, they, they could not see the readiness potential in their brain, but the sequence of events was the brain turns on some part of the brain and they could see that, it lit, lit up. And then, two or three seconds afterwards, they were aware of this thing they called will, and then something moved. Because they weren't aware of the brain turning on, they're only aware of uh, the thing which they could see a couple of fifths of a second before the, uh, the action was going to happen, that we always think that what we see as a will is what initiates action. It does not initiate action. By the time we can see the will, the action's already been started. So what you are aware of as will is not will. By that time, the process has already begun. We didn't see the start, so we can't actually realize that what we think is will, the process has already begun. Just remaining bare awareness came a disembodied reply. Bare awareness. What is that? Is that true? Is that reliable? Bare awareness? There. Okay, I haven't mentioned this one to you in this retreat. The flower pot experiment. This came from good old Bernard Carr, you know, the friend of. Uh, of Hawkins, and they said that one of his friends, a physicist at London University, claimed he discovered how to levitate things. And so he asked all his friends, other physicists, not students, not press, but a lot of other scientists, well-known scientists, to come into the lecture theatre at Imperial College in London to watch this demonstration of levitation. And they had cameras there, infrared cameras, um, ultraviolet cameras, ordinary cameras, everything as much possible uh, evidence-based, uh, evidence-producing equipment to see if this was true. Because if it did happen, he wanted to have some proof that it did happen afterwards. And then so the experimenter came in quite a well-known physicist, and he put this flower pot, he carried it in there, there was no strings attached, and he said, look, anyone can come up and there's nothing underneath the flower pot, there's no strings attached to it, and uh, we're now going to levitate it, turn on the cameras, look carefully. And then he said, but I need your help. I need everybody in this room to give this atmosphere of religiosity. Can you all please start chanting the Hindu holy word, Om? So all these old scientists, professors, stuffy uh, uh, professors, 
all started chanting Om. Om, Om, Om. And as they were chanting Om, the flower pot rose. It actually levitated. No strings, nothing underneath to push it up. It started rising into the air. And they videoed it, they photocopied it, had all the evidence of a levitating flower pot. Amazing. Groundbreaking. And then he told them all to be quiet. And then he just um, asked them what they thought of that, the levitating flower pot. And a couple of those scientists, these were trained observers who were good at bare awareness, said the flower pot never rose in the air at all. It was on the table all the time. They showed them the photographs. said, no, that's fake. I was watching it with my own eyes. I don't need photographs. It was on the table all the time. It never rose at all. And that was the whole point of the experiment. The flower pot did rise. And it rose because there was a huge electromagnet underneath the bench. And every time you turn on a very high amperage current into that um, electromagnet, of course, you can hear the current being turned on. That's why they had to go chanting Om, 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 to hide the fact they turned on a, a huge current and lift this flower pot. They said the point of the experiment was those couple of scientists who were adamant that the flower pot remained on the table, they were the ones who said it was impossible. It can't happen. You can't levitate things. Because it was so impossible for them, they could not see it. These hindrances of like denial actually blocked the perception. It just it never actually registered in the conscious awareness, even though it was happening. And he said that was the purpose of the experiment. Be careful of bare awareness. Bare awareness does not reveal the truth. When the hindrances are there, then that distorts reality in, in quite a, a major way, more than you think is possible. Okay. Just remaining bare awareness came a disembodied reply. Yet more questions arose. Who or what remains in bare awareness? Chooses to attend the talks and Q&As. That's the lovely thing I asked. You had no choice to come to this talk. That's why you're here. That's my proof. It appears you have a choice. Did you? Falls in love with the Dharma and aspires to walk in the Buddha's footsteps to enlightenment in this lifetime, please. Now, when you look closely at all these things you attribute to choice, how much is your choice? Now, one of the other examples, with Bernard and a few other my mates at Cambridge, we were solid members of the Psychic Research Society, and one of the things we would do every year was to invite a hypnotist, you know, to demonstrate what hypnotism is and all the tricks you can do with hypnotism. 
and there was always one student, you know, who the hypnotist could really uh, hypnotize deeply into a trance. And what he did with this one student, he made him do some stupid things, but then he said to the student, when I touch my right earlobe, no matter what you're doing, or what anybody else is doing, you will stand up and you will sing the British National Anthem in a loud voice from the beginning to the end, God Save the Queen. And of course, I was looking, and I thought, this is interesting. Does it actually work? And then he took him out of the, um, out of the hypnosis. And when he took him out of the hypnosis, he gave the instruction, you won't remember anything which I said during the hypnosis. During the hypnosis. You just do it. And so we were all waiting you know, for the hypnotist to touch his right earlobe. And he was a bit of an entertainer, this hypnotist, because he put his hand up close and then he'd scratch, scratch his nose or something. But then eventually he did touch his right earlobe. And this young student, maybe 20 years of age, would stand up and he was singing a loud voice from beginning to end, God save the Queen. And monks like, no, not monks, I wasn't a monk, I was a student. All my friends, we were just laughing our heads off. We were almost wetting our pants because it was just so hilarious. And even though we were laughing and, and joking, and, and he, he was not affected at all. He did that national anthem from the very beginning to the very end in a loud voice. And we were all laughing our heads off. But then when he finished, he sat down. And we couldn't believe he did something like that in public. And then afterwards, the hypnotist asked him, why did you do that? Even though it was a stupid thing to do, everybody else was laughing at you. Why did you do that? And then he gave a cogent reason, a logical reason why he did that. And that's when I got uh, goosebumps. Because it was very clear that this student thought he had done that from his own free will. That he'd chosen to sing the British National Anthem, even if it was the most stupid thing to do. And that started me to think, all the things which I do, are they my free will? Or is it just how it seems? There was. I'm, even though I tried to have no more questions, can I go on a bit longer? Because there's a story of this, uh, this monk who started a new temple and was always having a lot of difficulty getting enough funds to pay the bills. So he went to one of the senior monks and said, oh yeah, that's always the same when you first start a temple. You know, you've got, so people don't really know you. It takes a while to get the confidence and faith. So he said, this is what to do. This is how I started off. And the senior monk said, when you're going to give a talk, make sure all the windows are closed. Turn up the heating so it gets a little bit stuffy inside the hall. And give a boring talk. No jokes, no, nothing interesting, just boring. And then when your audience starts to fall asleep, then take out like one of these fob watches, backwards and forwards. <laughs> and when people are all hypnotized, give them the instructions. Today, 
No coins in the donation box. No fives, tens or twenties. Only fifties and hundreds. <laughs> and then take him out of meditation and see what happens. <laughs> he said, I can't do that. That's fraud. It's not fraud. It's encouraging people to do good karma. <laughs> and so he said, okay, I'll try it. And so he did that. And he turned up the heater, gave a boring talk, which was easy. And then he did his fob watch. Everyone was hypnotized. And he said, no fives, tens, twenties, only fifties, hundreds, no coins. He cleaned up that day. He made so much in his donation box. It was a brilliant idea. And so <laughs> when he needed money, he didn't do that every week because people suss him out. They'll find out that you know, something was strange. So the next couple of weeks, when he needed some more money, he tried it again. He closed all the windows, turned up the heat, gave a boring talk. When people were falling asleep and about to be hypnotized, he got out his fob watch. And as he was hypnotizing them, he dropped his watch. He went crash on the ground and all broke up. And he said, shit. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you got it. It took him weeks to clean up the place. <laughs> That's a karmic response. Anyway, let's keep going here. As I am practicing letting be, how can I tell if I'm allowing my body to rest or if I'm just being lazy? What is your understanding of laziness? Being lazy, you feel very different. Being lazy, your mind goes all over the place. And you're not really sort of resting. Just like somebody goes and sits and just watches the trees grow. They don't watch the trees grow. They, they read a book about watching the trees grow. Or they describe it. They go and painting something. In other words, they're not really resting their mind. They're resting their body. Sometimes they're resting their body, but not that much. Lazy people can get very tired. It's a lot of work for most people. They don't know how to be lazy. They go thinking too much. So really letting be is that simile I gave some years ago. You're in the garden, you're sitting down there, you're supposed to be doing nothing, but then you've got a radio playing or you've got earbuds in or you've got your mobile phone there. That's doing things. So you put all that aside and then you start looking at the garden and start planning. Now that needs weeding, that needs watering, that needs another bush in there, that tree needs a limb taken off, it's dangerous. That again is more doing. To be able to let things be and rest, you have to say, even though the lawn needs mowing, even though the branches need pruning, even though the path needs sweeping, not now. And you, to be really letting things be, you have to understand that this is good enough. It's not perfect, but it's good enough for me to rest. When you don't think or plan or remember anything. Dear Ajahn Brahm, what will happen to our mind after we die? Oh, it goes on and on and on and on. You know, sometimes that there was, I said this, these examples of people speaking when they were born. My favourite one 
It was reported in a, uh, a journal from the United States in a maternity ward when the baby came out of the womb, still attached to the umbilical cord, and all the midwives or whatever who was in that room at the time looking at the kid saw the kid open its mouth and say the immortal words, Oh no, not again. <laughs> so your mind sort of continues on unless you're fully enlightened and then it stops. It continues on seeking for another body in which to uh, perform its uh, fantasies and desires. This body is like the playground for the five senses. If it hasn't done with playgrounds yet, it will find another one. Some people experience a loved one who already passed uh, coming to see them at the last moment. How can it happen? Those relatives died many years ago. This is the people who haven't died yet but have the near-death experiences. But sometimes, even though your relative may have died many years ago, sometimes they can be in places like... Uh, uh, what's his name? The Gatikara coming to see the Buddha, even though the Gatikara died uh, thousands of years ago at least, to come and see the Buddha. So, and uh, the other person who came to see the Buddha after his enlightenment was, was Bhamajala. No, no, sorry, not Bhamajala. Uh, yeah, Bhamasampati, yeah. Came to see the Buddha to ask him to please teach. Those relatives died many years ago. Yeah, they died, but they got reborn somewhere. And sometimes when they, we still have connections with them, and sometimes those connections that they will come and say hello. After, experience beauti after experiencing beautiful Nimitta, how can we improve it further? What are the next steps after Nimitta? Please explain. Okay, if you experience a beautiful nimitta, then please don't want it back again. The wanting back again causes so much suffering for people because it's a wanting stops it coming back again. Please remember the causes, why it came up. What were you doing? And recreate the causes. Want the causes, don't want the results. It's just like... When you go home, you might go into your kitchen. Oh, there's so many dirty dishes there. And you can't just by saying, oh, may the dishes be clean. That's not going to get those dishes clean. You have to remember, how do dishes become clean? You've got to wash them up. So you remember the causes for clean dishes. Once you remember the causes for clean dishes, it's like you remember the causes for nimitas arising. So want the causes, not the results, and then your dishes will be get cleaned much quicker. Does that make sense? No? Yeah, okay. Anyway. Dear, okay. I'll get the answer to why you didn't even respond. Dear Ajahn Brahm, due to poor hearing, it is often difficult to hear your words of wisdom. That's what it says in here. Is it possible, could you please speak a little louder? 
as our sound system is a little unreliable, as are many things in life, with deepest respect and metta. If you can't hear, then please let me know. <laughs> Anyone can't hear? <laughs> Dear Ajahn Brahm, what is emptiness? Emptiness is when you look at something and there's nothing there at all, nothing you can name. Emptiness is not a thing, it's the absence of things. Sometimes, I don't know if you remember um, Lewis Carroll, and I, I forget whether it's Alice Through the Looking Glass or Alice in Wonderland, but then when Alice arrived at the square of the Red Queen, the Red Queen who was waiting for the messenger to arrive, and so hadn't arrived yet. So the Queen asked Alice, did you see anybody on the road? And Alice said, I saw nobody on the road. Wow, what amazing eyes you have, Alice. You know, even my eyes, it takes me a lot to see somebody, but I've never managed to get the sight to see nobody. And then, eventually, the, um, what's it called, the messenger arrived. Then the, the Queen asked the messenger, did you see anybody on the road? Did any, and said, I saw nobody on the road, um, Your Majesty. Wow, it's amazing. Alice saw nobody as well. You've just got such special eyes, the two of you. But you were very late, um, messenger. Look, I, I, I walked as fast as I can. No one walked faster than me. Yes, no one. They, we both saw him coming here. <laughs> and it was just playing a game with making no one into a somebody and emptiness into a thing. Instead, that emptiness is the absence of things. You can't you know, call emptiness something. That's why sometimes people call the emptiness of emptiness. Okay. Dear Ajahn, what do you mean by free choice in terms of uh, euthanasia, I think? Free choices, that means it really has to be your choice. You're not brainwashed into doing it. Your loved ones who are just waiting for you to go so they can get your inheritance or your will, they don't say, oh, come on, Prem. You know, you're old enough now. <laughs> I know that, you know, you, you're going to donate all your money to the nuns' monastery. You know, you can't really enjoy your life now. You know, you're getting old. So why not just, you know, come on. <laughs> Then of course, of course, that's not free choice. So free choice really has to be that, number one, you're in full possession of your mental faculties. There is no a coercion on you at all. And you freely choose, you know, as free as you possibly can, to choose this is what you want to do. That's usually why they have to have at least, I think, a couple of doctors and a few psychologists to make it legal. And so it really is a free choice, as best you possibly can make it. Why didn't Ajahn Chah, your teacher, end his suffering sooner as he suffered from stroke for a long time? With Ajahn Chah, that after you know, he had his stroke, 
then the monks of Wat Pong had a meeting, what should we do? And they all agreed, you know, to say, let him die naturally. No need for any intervention, no need to try and keep him alive. And so that's what they did. They just made that decision and decided, oh, he can just die naturally. But then the king of Thailand heard that, and the king of Thailand at the time said, no, you keep him alive. And the king of Thailand would pay for a, a medic to be with Ajahn Chah sort of 24-7. So the monks got out voted by the king of Thailand. But that was an interesting because uh, a, few, a few occasions, while Ajahn Chah was sick for quite a few years, a few times that he stopped breathing. And when he stopped breathing, the medic on duty wanted to intervene. The monks who were also there looking after him said, no, leave him alone. He does this all the time. It's just deep meditation. And the medic on duty at the time said, no, I've got to intervene. He might die. He's going to die one day anyway. Yeah, but not on my shift. Because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you get in trouble for that. But anyway, so on this one occasion, the monks on duty, in the middle of the night sometime, got this compromise. They said, well, look, um, check his, uh, the oxygenation level of his blood. And as long as there's enough oxygen in his blood, he doesn't need to breathe. Yeah, but it, won't, it will lose oxygen if he doesn't uh, breathe. It will just check it. And so... The medic checked Ajahn Chah's oxygen level in his blood, I think every 10 minutes for quite a few hours, and found out that even though Ajahn Chah wasn't breathing, the oxygen level remained the same. There was no danger. And it's one of those interesting experiments on someone who was uh, in a deep meditation and seeing actually what was happening. There's no breath happening the oxygen level remained the same in the blood. Anyway, last question. Goodness gracious. I've been rushing these questions, so because this is the last question, I'll read it out slowly. <laughs> is it okay if I want my mum to do more charity work and to learn about meditation. It's so difficult to introduce those activities to her. Any advice? I don't know what your mum does, but to learn about meditation, that might be easier for her than to do charity work, simply because there's just so much scientific evidence there how meditation actually can increase your health, your energy. Uh, you can say it's a wonderful thing for, for preventing COVID and overcoming cancer, lessening blood pressure, so many things. And so when you say all the benefits of meditation, that might be enough to get her to actually to start the meditation. And then once she learns about meditation, then you can tell her about 
how you can boost the happiness in meditation by doing lots of charity work. <laughs> in other words, but charity work doesn't have to be just um, just uh, giving donations. You know, some of the charity work which I did as a young student was actually visiting this uh, place in Fullbourne Mental Hospital just outside of Cambridge to just volunteer to assist with the occupational therapy team looking after people with Down syndrome. And I only went there, quite honestly, because my friends who were Christian were going there. And I just thought, well, I'm a Buddhist. I better sort of show the flag of Buddhism. If they can do it, so can Buddhists. But this is quite honestly, they uh, stopped going there after about two or three weeks. And I carried on there for two years. I enjoyed it. And it wasn't really charity work. It wasn't what I was giving. I was getting so much from the people who had Down syndrome. I could have a dinner with some noble laureate in Cambridge, but I preferred the emotional wisdom of these people with Down syndrome. I learned so much more from them. That's why I love going there. So you might call it charity work, but it's just part of increasing your loving-kindness, your uh, charity in action, your kindness in action, sorry. That's why I really encourage people to help out in an old people's home. It's uh, Sometimes I look at our monastery and we're very close to being an old people's home now. <laughs> and there's quite, quite a few old people come to the meditations, aren't there? <laughs> but anyway... Learning just how to be kind and learning how to recognize different qualities in different people. Going to prisons. Prisons were great places to do charity work. When I first went to prisons, I thought, there's a lot of rich people in here. And I thought, when they get released... Now, Alan Bond was up in kind of prison farm some years ago. He was a very notorious, uh, wealthy person. And I really thought... You know, once you teach them over there, once they're released, they'll be great people to become our treasurers in our Buddhist society committee. <laughs> they never did, though. Anyhow. So, anyway, it's a nice thing to do, but get her to do meditation first of all. It's good for your health. And it's good to be able to, uh, to do... Now it's the time for me to do charity work for you. So, out of loving kindness to each one of you, we will now end this session. <laughs> so, thank you for listening. And all the questions have been answered. Answered correctly or not, please be charitable to me <laughs> and say good enough. Thank you all for listening. Bye. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. <laughs> okay. So the question box is actually now empty. So those who got other questions in or anything... One thing I should say that I always respect questions, at least I try to. So if there's something which I didn't answer correctly or answer too briefly or I didn't actually get the full message of your question, please ask it again because I think it's very disrespectful. You go to the trouble of asking a question, I have to try and answer it the best I can. Okay? Good night.